Psalm 23. We'll finish up this psalm tonight. We began last week. Tommy, do we have any announcements tonight? All right. Starting in verse 1, it says, our text, the inspired and errant infallible word says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us tonight through the inspired psalm. Lord, that the Holy Spirit will take these truths and indelibly write them upon our hearts. Instruct us in your ways, Lord. Show us your greatness your sympathies, your grace, your victories won at the cross. Show us, Lord, what you have done and what you have won and that you are indeed the good shepherd, the bishop of our souls. So speak to us tonight, Lord, powerfully and personally. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't want to go back and re-preach what I preached last week. Let me just give an overview. Last time we took a, <coughs> an opening run at this saying that Psalm 23 is the outworking of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is the good shepherd dying for his sheep, laying his life down for the sheep. We see the cruelties, the agonies of the cross. And then in Psalm 23, we see the victories won. We see the glories of our Savior. We see the victories of the cross, the saving work of Jesus applied. The first verse we took a look at last time, we saw the character of the shepherd. The character of the shepherd. The Lord, or it would say in the original, Yahweh is my shepherd. And we saw these truths about the character of the good shepherd. First of all, we saw that he's present with us. The term Yahweh gives us that understanding. In the English Bible, it says Lord, but in the Hebrew Bible, it would say Yahweh. This is the covenant name of God that God covenanted with Moses, his servant at the burning bush, saying that you will go back into Egypt and that you will address Pharaoh and that I am with you. <coughs> Who shall I say that sent us? I am sent you. The I am God, meaning that I am will be with you all along the way. I quoted Dale Ralph Davis, that Old Testament scholar, and he paraphrased it this way. He says that it's theological shorthand, so as to say, I will be present is what I will be. I will be with my people to be whatever they need for me to be for them. That's what Dale Ralph Davis said. So he's a, a shepherd that is present with us, that he never leaves or forsakes us. Jesus quoted the Old Testament there in Hebrews 13, 5, and he is saying that, the I am God never abandons his people. The good shepherd leaves the 99 and goes and takes the one that has gone off away into danger and brings it back into the fold. He is always with us. 
then he's also a personal shepherd. It says that he is my shepherd in verse 1. This is the character of our shepherd. He's present with us and he's personal to us. He knows the hairs of our head. He's sovereign over our lives. So not only does he know about us, he knows us. I think it would be safe to say that he knows you better than you know you. He knows you in that kind of an intimacy and in that kind of a way. It's the fatherhood of our God that he knows all of his children. This is the shepherd contrasting the sheep. He knows all of his sheep. It says in John chapter 3, or I'm sorry, John chapter 10 verse 3, that he calls his own sheep by name. It's a personal relationship, a filial relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. He knows us intimately. He's known us from eternity past, Ephesians 1, 4. And it's an intimate knowing from everlasting to everlasting. He's loved his people. And then he is a shepherd and his character is that of provision. The, the, the psalmist says that I shall not want. I shall not be in want. He provides all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. He has made a way for us to be reconciled to God, that there is a sufficiency about his blood to bring us into good favor with his Father. He is the mediator between God and man, that he has provided, there is provision in Christ. Last time we looked at verses 2 through 6 as well, so not only the character of the shepherd, but the care, the care. So verse 1 delineates the character of the good shepherd, and then starting in verse 2, we start seeing the care of this good shepherd. We see in verses 1 through 3, the provision, the provision of this good shepherd that he provides for us. What does he, what does he provide for us? Well, we delineated several truths. First of all, we saw that he provides an inexhaustible supply. He says, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Jesus said in John six fifty five and 56, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And there is an inexhaustible supply for what we need in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we saw that there's inexplicable rest. We're delineating and talking about this provision in Christ. He makes me lie down in green pastures, it says in verse 2. He leads me beside still waters. And again, I'm just hitting the top of the water like a rock skipped real fast to go over these points once again. That we have rest. That the, the man that is in his sins is in an inward state of turmoil. And we saw in Psalm 22 that our Lord was crushed, that his soul was in anguish, that you and I as believers and the sheep of his pasture might have inexplicable rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, come to me, all of those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He will give us rest. And then we see that there's an undeserved restoration in verse 3. He restores my soul. The word in the Hebrew behind this word, soul, and restores is the idea of God returning our hearts back to him. James Montgomery Boyce calls it a Hebrew idiom, saying that he restores my soul means to bring me to repentance, that he brings my soul to conversion, in other words. So this is not just a restoration of a discouraged heart, but it's a restoration of a sin-bound and cursed heart. He restores my soul. We note here the one that does the restoring, that God is the one that does this work. He's restoring his sheep, that he has given to us new hearts with new and right desires. And then we see in verse, 20, 23, or verse 3 of 23 that he's an unprecedented guide. 
He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. This is our Lord's work. It led us to where we left off last week, and it's in verse 4. Not only does our Lord provide as a good shepherd, he protects. He protects. He protects us. He doesn't simply provide for the sheep. He protects them from dangers as well. I'm a big fan of the book, The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. I try to read that every year, even over the last 20, 25 years. I believe it to be one of the best pieces of literature that's ever been penned by a human author apart from inspired scripture. But throughout that great story, uh, Bunyan shows the Christian life as the believer always facing all kinds of trouble. He depicts Christian, who is the man, the main character, as always in a place of trouble or danger. He goes through the, 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 slew, the, slew, the slew of despond. He then has to pass later on through lions, the dangers and the fear and the evil fiends, these, these demons from hell. And for those of you that have read that great work, you'll understand what I'm talking about, that it seems that on every page, Christian is facing some danger or some turbulence in the Christian way. What I'm trying to tell us is, is that the Christian life is not a, 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 a sprawl in the park. The Christian life is a trek through a battlefield. If you listen to today's preachers, you would never come to the sober conclusion about the Christian life and faith and the dangers of it. They make it sound like it's a gleeful life, something that is that, that you come to Christ and you have your best life now. I convinced myself to write a book called Your Best Battle Now, and every day is a battle day. And that's what I think we need to hear. The Christian life is not a coast down a slippery slide and then we slide our way into heaven. No, it's a battle upstream. It, it, we're up, uphill all the way that there is uh, contending for the faith. There are enemies that we are to contend with and that they're opposers to the gospel and that there are always things that creep in that we need to be at war with, with at war with our lust, at war with the world, at war with the devil and all of his fiends. There's always something that we're to resist, such as temptation and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, these things that we're always to be denouncing and putting off. That's the Christian life. It's never your best life now. The Christian has their best life later. Now we're fighting the good fight of faith. And I'm not saying that the Christian life is absent of joy, but the joy of the Lord is to be tasted in the midst of battle. He renews us. He aligns our affections to him while we're fighting the good fight of faith. Now, we understand that the Christian life is not gloomy, and we're not trying to say that. The Scripture tells us in 1 Peter 1.8 that we are full of joy, unspeakable, and full of glory. But it, we're, we're still contending against indwelling lust. We're still contending with the world that surrounds us. We're still contending with a, an adversary that's roaming about like a roaring lion seeking who may devour and by the way, sometimes that roaring lion comes in disguise as an angel of light. <clears throat> but in the midst of the, of the difficulty, in the midst of the danger, and the Christian life, we have a shepherd that protects us along the way. I want you to note these truths about how he protects us. In verse 4, it shows us that he protects us from death's power. Death's power. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you're with me. One of the issues that I take with some of the modern commentators in the way that they interpret this particular text is the way that they remove it from its context and the flow of thought that's given to us in the previous chapter with regard to the sufferings of our Savior. 
They want to make this strictly just circumstantial, that whenever life gets hard and I'm going through what seems to me to be the valley of the shadow of death, that I can have some comfort that the Lord is with me through those. And that's not to say that he's not, but I don't think that's the context here. I understand that there are those seasons where the good shepherd does walk with us, <coughs> excuse me, through dark circumstances in the outward and the temporary sense. So I get that. But I believe that what this context forces us to understand about this particular verse is that our good shepherd has gone to the cross and that he's died in our place and that he has accomplished a work for us on the cross that liberates us from this kind of eternal death that Jesus Christ absorbed upon the cross. I can hardly see the full implication in context of this verse being in the good shepherd walking with me through a circumstance where I feel afraid. I'm not saying again that that this has nothing to do with this. I'm saying that's not the main point here. What I'm saying is the main point is that by his death, he has crushed death to death for the believer. I believe it's vividly revealed to us in Hebrews chapter 4 what the psalmist is talking about whenever it's speaking about that he, that he is going with me, if you will, through the valley of the shadow of death, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It says in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the saying that through, thank you, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. That is Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. So what we're to understand that the Lord is going with us to the valley of the shadow of death, that upon the cross of Calvary, that Jesus stormed the citadels of death, that on the cross of Calvary, Jesus disarmed the power of death, that he took the chill of death and he faced it all by himself alone. He was stricken and forsaken of God. He was abandoned by his father's familial intimacy and that he took death and he drank down every bitter dreg to its last drop in the place of everyone who would ever believe. And that death has no more power over the Christian so that whenever we walk through the valley of death's shadow, we remember this that Christ has overcome death and it's only a shadow of death and that the reality of death never falls upon the believer because Christ is with us. He has absorbed it and that he is there with us saying, this one is mine. There is no death for the believer. There's only precious rest. So we see in verse four that our Lord, our shepherd, the good shepherd, he protects us from death's power. The second truth we see in verse 4b is that our good shepherd protects us from fear's paralysis. He protects us from fear's paralysis. What is this? Oh, okay. I thought it was Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> I need, I'll need a glass of water if it's Alka-Seltzer. Okay, thank you. For those of you who don't know, I'll leave the song service on that side and then grab my suitcase and run over here real fast. And so I've got a lot of voice stuff going on before I ever get over here. So that's why I'm a little bit dry and, and crackly. It says in verse 4b, I will fear no evil. Look at this. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
Fear is a formidable enemy, isn't it? And there's times when Satan comes against the people of God, launching those fiery darts. And there are times that those darts strike dangerously close to us. And because of that, fear can arise. That Christian warfare is not hypothetical for a true believer, is it? Christian warfare is real. That the enemy is not a hypothetical enemy. He is not a figment of our imaginations. He is not some imaginary character in this imaginary Christian life that we just imagine things. Now, I know that there are people that do imagine things, but we're talking about serious-minded believers that are dealing with a formidable enemy. Christian warfare is part of the Christian life. We're thrust onto the battle or into this warfare whenever we're converted. We understand that there's an enemy of our souls that's on the prowl. He is full of wrath, knowing that his time is short, it says in Revelations 12, 12. But what we find in verse 4b is that we have a good shepherd whose presence is accompanying us through our Christian pilgrimage. And we also understand by this that we are not exempted from dangerous valleys. It doesn't say that you will not walk through a valley of the shadow of death. It says that you won't walk through it alone. It tells us that we will not fear because we've been promised divine accompaniment through all of these dangerous, dark, fearful valleys. I want you to think about this. No matter what we go through in life or, not, or what we go through even before we go to be with Jesus in death, that the exalted, enthroned, sovereign ruler of the cosmos is accompanying you and is accompanying me through every stormy season of the soul. So we must ask this question, what is there to fear? The psalmist will write in Psalm 27, verses 1 through 3, that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread when evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh? My adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Confident. What's there to fear whenever your Savior? What is there to fear whenever the King of the universe, the sovereign potentate that rules upon the throne of all authority and power, is accompanying you and I through the fearsome moments in life where the enemy is striking very close with those fiery darts? Think about who's with us. Omnipotence. Sovereignty. That's why Paul in light of what shall separate us from the love of Christ shall fear of death. So he names all these things, persecution, famine, the sword. Well, he says, we say in the midst of all these things, if God be for us, who can be against us? Paul recognizes that he is sovereign and enthroned. He realizes that he is a good shepherd that dwells with all of his blood-bought sheep. That he's loved us with an everlasting love that whenever he went to the cross and he paid for us, he carried us there. When he walked out of the tomb, we were in him, walking out of that tomb with him. And whenever he ascended, he seated us on the right hand of the Father, making intercession, and we are seated with him in heavenly places. We forget sometimes of what Christ has done and won for us, and that he's with us, and the promise that he's made. He protects us. He keeps us. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who 
is against us. I was working on this in my study and uh, my good friend, uh, Pastor Brett Beasley, called me just out of the blue and just talked for a little bit and he asked me what I was working on and I told him, he said, you know, brother, that that says that the, the Lord here in this, in this uh, fourth verse says that he carries a rod and a staff and that they are a comfort to him. He says, you know what that means, right? He says, think back to the Exodus. You think about Moses and the staff that God had called him to stretch out over the Red Sea and that we saw that by the power of God that the most powerful regime and the most powerful army of the world was completely trashed by the power of God because God had a shepherd's staff in the hand of the man of God and that God commanded and wielded mighty power through that instrument. And he says that this good shepherd still wields that kind of a staff. Moses is a type of Christ. He's the prophet, which is the forerunner of the big P prophet who would come, which is our Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is both prophet, priest, and king. And that he has this rod. He has the very staff of God in his hand. And that whenever you and I are going through the valley of the shadow of death, that he wields that same rod that crushed down the army of the most powerful army in the world that was pursuing a little feeble group of people that God had called his own. That did not have ability to defend themselves. And that God decimated them by way of that rod. And so whenever he says the rod and the staff, they comfort me, it takes our mind back to how the rod and the staff would comfort Israel, that that army was dashed to pieces. They saw the victory of God and they stood there on the banks of the Red Sea and they celebrated and they sang and they praised the living God for, listen, the horse and the rider, they fell into the sea. The mighty rod and staff of God comforts his people. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. He loves his people. He walks with his people. He never abandons his people. And that he is a protecting shepherd that protects his people. The next thing we see is in verse 5a that our good shepherd protects us from the adversary's presence. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So the idea here is that there are enemies that are close. It says, in the presence of my enemies. Now listen to this. And the Lord sets a table for his people in their presence. The Hebrew here, in the presence of my enemies, gives the idea of this, right in front of my enemies. That the enemies are right there in front of me and that God prepares a table for me Right in, his, right in their presence, listen, and, and they couldn't do anything to me. I'm out of reach. That the adversaries can surround the people of God, but they're unable to touch them. This tells us that we are divinely protected by God. Now, I want you to understand this in the right kind of a sense. This doesn't mean that we escape every dire circumstance and that the circumstance doesn't touch us. That's not what it's teaching. This doesn't even mean that the enemies of God, meaning evil men cannot harm us physically because we all know that martyrdom is a real threat and a, rea a reality for many, many believers. But this is not what this deliverance is from. This is referring to the hostile enemies of our souls that could do us eternal harm. This is referencing Satan and his minions that harass and taunt the righteous. 
that they are utterly helpless to touch us, that the cross of Jesus Christ is finished, that the power of Satan is broken, that the curse upon us has ended, and that he spreads the table, listen to me, with his own accomplishments. He has a cup. It's filled with his own blood. He's prepared a table. It's exclusively for the saints, and that the enemies cannot partake of this table. His flesh and blood are spread before us. Even though we're surrounded with many enemies and adversaries, they're impoverished and they are unable to be strengthened by this meal because they cannot partake of it. The old Puritan Matthew Henry said, plentiful provision is made for their bodies, for their souls, for the life that is now and the life which is to come. His contemporary Matthew Poole, a Puritan said, Thou furnishest me with plenty and variety of provisions and comforts, my enemies seeing and envying and fretting at it and not being able to hinder it. So I see this as the idea being represented is that the blessings of God here are upon the redeemed and they're out of the reach of the enemies of God and that this table, the anointing oil and the overflowing cup is metaphoric language to describe the wonderful blessings of the grace of God that is given to those who believe and that they are out of reach from those who reject the gospel of grace. There's an abundance of grace bestowed in full view of these beggars who reject the gospel of God. The next thing I want us to see in verses 5 and 6, this is where we'll end, and that is the provision of his preservation of the sheep. Not only his presence, his preservation here, and his protection. Verse 5b shows that the psalm is coming to a closure with the promise that the good shepherd will preserve his sheep. That means that he will keep his sheep for both time and eternity. This means that their souls are safely nestled in the bosom of the great shepherd of our souls. 1 Peter 2.25 says, You were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian or the overseer of your souls. The first thing I want you to see is that the good shepherd provides or preserves his flock amidst temporary suffering. He keeps us through temporary suffering. Look at verse 5b through 6a. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all of the days of my life. In the ancient world, it was customary to anoint someone's head with oil that had been out in the hot, sun-drenched Palestinian sun as they were on a long and wearisome journey through that kind of a terrain, and that the oil would refresh the body while the cup would refresh the thirst. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce said that the oil and the wine were highly valued in the dry, barren lands of the Near East. In Palestine, where the sun shines fiercely most of the year and the temperatures continually soar up into the hundreds, the skin becomes cracked and broken and throats become parched. He goes on to say that the oil soothes the skin, particularly the face. The wine clears the throat. When a guest arrived at the home of a friend, hospitality demanded the provision of oil and wine so that the ravages of travel might be overcome. Any of you that have been following Christ for many, many years will observe and note that the Christian life 
can be long and at the same time arduous. That there are a lot of obstacles, oftentimes that there seem to be legions of adversaries strung along the route to harass and taunt us. But here what we find is the good shepherd is actively preserving his flock. He's caring for his people along the way and providing for their needs. And because of the good shepherd's provision, because of the covenant that he's made with his people, that the entirety of our life is bookended with the covenant blessings that is given to us by God. He says here, goodness and mercy, or goodness and, and mercy will follow me. The word here is hesed in the Greek. I'm sorry, in the Hebrew. It's the same term that we've tried to describe throughout the Psalms. It's very heavily used. It's a word that we can, in the understanding of the framework of the grace of God, say that this word does mean grace. That the loving kindness, that the gracious mercy of God will follow the saint right along that road of difficulty. It says it will follow them in our English language. I like the way that the Septuagint, the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament puts it. It, it, says that, it says that goodness and mercy will pursue us all the days of our life. The same as in the Lexham English Bible. It says, surely goodness and hesed, loving kindness, will pursue me. Pursue me, not follow, pursue me all of the days of our life. And I like the way that it puts that because I believe it gives a little bit clearer picture as to what the Hebrew would say. So what we can understand by this is that when life gets tough for the believer, the good shepherd pursues his own with the rich resources of his grace. He pursues his own. He lavishes us with strength. We're not abandoned along the way. We're pursued and we're preserved. That he will not allow us to succumb. He will not allow us to fail. That the good shepherd pursues his people because of a covenant made with Abraham. And because of who we are by the purchase price of the blood of Christ. That he pursues his people. He loves us in this kind of a way. And let he gives us the grace and strength that we need to continue on with him. He will not let you fall away, my friend. He will not allow you to be eternally destroyed. He preserves his sheep. He keeps us all the way home. And he tells us that in verse 6. So the good shepherd also preserves his flock unto their eternal rewards. And this is where we will end. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord, Yahweh, forever. He keeps his people all the way home. He preserves us all the way to the end. You may think and ask the question within yourself, Pastor, how far will he go with me? There are times when I am weak and I seem to struggle. Will he become tired of me? Will he go after another flock instead of me? Will he put me away because I seem to be so problem-filled, but I love him and I've been saved by him? And we understand here that he does not abandon us along the way. He doesn't sell us to buy a better flock. He accompanies us all of the way to heaven. He, he's with us through the valley that is strewn with dark shadows. He's with us all the way to the entrance of this eternal dwelling place. John 14, 1 through 3 says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. <clears throat> Believe also in me. 
In my father's house, there are many dwelling places, many tents, many tabernacles. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and to receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. We inherit this because he performed this. He purchased us for God with his blood. Revelation 5, 9. Out of every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation. He purchased our justification. He purchased our sanctification, being conformed to his image. He purchased our glorification. Salvation in the scriptures is a comprehensive term. It doesn't mean only justification. It doesn't only mean regeneration. It also includes our conforming to Christ, our sanctification, but it also guarantees by the deposit of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us that we will make it to heaven by his grace, by his strength, because he'll lose nothing of that which the Father has given to him. He will keep us. He will keep us. He doesn't abandon us, but I'm weak. He doesn't abandon us, but I'm tired. He will carry you. You don't go to heaven on the wings of your strength. You don't get to heaven by the accomplishments of your tenacious, tenacious personality. You don't get to heaven because you're smart. You don't get to heaven because you're strong. You get to heaven because Christ is strong. You go to heaven because Christ has made a way. You go to heaven because he purchased you with his blood. You go to heaven because he regenerated you by a spirit through the gospel. Because he justified you by faith. And because he sanctifies you by the truth. And because he will glorify you because of the promise. The good shepherd leads us all the way home. He doesn't withdraw us from us. He doesn't abandon us. He surrounds us with protection. He fills us with his own goods along the way. He nourishes and nurtures, feeds, leads, and guides his feeble little sheep. He's the bishop. He's the shepherd of our souls. In conclusion, Jesus said, with regard to he being the good shepherd, in John 10, 27 to 30, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. That knowing there is not just that he knows us in the cursory sense. Well, they look familiar, but I'm not sure. No, this is the kind of know that Abraham knew Sarah and Sarah bore Isaac. This is intimacy. This is knowing at the deepest sense of what it means to be intimate with God, that he knows us. My sheep hear my voice, and it says, and I know them. It would be the same word and the same idea of foreknowledge as we found in Romans chapter 8. He has foreknown us. He has known us from everlasting to everlasting, that before there was time, before there was a cosmos, before there was an earth, before there was a garden, before there was a fall, he knew his own. And he knew them savingly that the Father had given them to the Son in the covenant of redemption, and that we are caught up in this grand, wondrous, redemptive scheme that brings honor and glory to the grace of God, and that he will not let one of his sheep fall away because he is too intimate with us. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Listen to this. I give eternal life to them. That means irrevocable life. He doesn't give to us partial life, life that is under some prerequisite that we have to perform. He says, I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish. That means that they will never 
go back into that state of spiritual death. That when he regenerates, he justifies. When he justifies, he sanctifies. When he sanctifies, he glorifies, as we learned in Romans chapter 8, and then this statement in, in John 10, 27, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why? He bought us. He owns us. Who is there that is greater than him? Who is greater than the Father? That he and the Father, they are one. That's what he says. No one can snatch them from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father, that we are one. No one can take them from my hand. No one can take them to the Father's hand. Why is that? Because the triune God has wrapped his purpose and plan around us. He's satisfied it. He's redeemed a people. He's the good shepherd. And that no one is greater. No one can break this unbreakable decree of God. We are caught up in an inner Trinitarian glorious work of salvation. And that it can never be broken. And that there is no fiend of hell. That there is no devil. And that there is no fallen sinner that can... Take us out of this everlasting covenant between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. We're divinely kept, we're divinely protected, and the Good Shepherd ensures it, and His blood, listen, cannot be broken. We'll finish this by saying that Psalm 22, the cross, makes Psalm 23 glorious. He purchased for God by His own sufferings, by His own death, by His own blood, a people for God, Romans, I'm sorry, Revelation 5, 9, out of the nations of the earth. He made a purchase. Me and Cole talk about this stuff all the time. Whenever he makes a purchase, who is going to say you cannot have what you purchase with your own blood? Who is there in heaven? Who is there on earth? Who is there under the earth that has the authority and the power to say Christ cannot have what he legally purchased with his own blood? I've heard this statement before. Well, you can remove yourself from his hand. My answer to that is this. You never put yourself in his hand to begin with. He plucked you out of the fire as a brand. He plucked you out with his own hand you didn't put yourself into his hand and you will not take yourself out of his hand. You're not stronger than the king. You are not able to remove yourself from this covet, nor would you want to. He's a good shepherd. He's a good shepherd. He laid down his life for the sheep. Our privilege is because that he has been plundered. He is with us now and he's with us forever. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How can he say that so bold? Because the good shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep. For the sheep. Well, Lord, we're so thankful for the 23rd Psalm. May it bring comfort to our hearts, clarity, clarity to our minds, conviction to our souls, and joy unspeakable, full of glory that we might rejoice even in the midst of this present life that is strewn with obstacles, that is oftentimes filled with sorrows. But the Lord, that you keep us all the way to the end. May we have confidence in our Savior, our Good Shepherd. Thank you for your church. Thank you for the love of the Word of God that they have. 
Thank you, Lord God, that you're at work in them, conforming, conforming them to Christ in this work of sanctification through the word. And that your sheep have come tonight to feed in the green pastures of the truth of God. Lord, may our souls be satisfied. May our view of Christ be exalted. Lord, may our worship be fervent and pure. May you receive the reward of your suffering, which is your church. And we'll give you the praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's take.